Hello, and welcome back to Off the Deaton Path. I'm Stan Deaton with the Georgia Historical Society, and we welcome you to this podcast for September 16th, 2021. We are broadcasting this week from the Division of Middle Earth Studies here at the Georgia Historical Society on the 15th floor of the Jepson House overlooking beautiful Forsyth Park in downtown historic Savannah. We'll take a look back at one of the most popular and influential novels of the 20th century this week as well as the birth and death of two pioneering musicians. This week, we'll also be remembering five prominent historians who've died recently and whose work helped redefine several eras of American history over the last 50 years. But before we get to that, however, let's begin with a look at the ever-popular This Week in History. On September 16, 1620, 401 years ago, English colonists aboard the ship Mayflower set sail for America where they founded the Plymouth Colony in Massachusetts, the first permanent New England colony. After a 66-day voyage, the Mayflower first landed on November 21st on Cape Cod at what is now Provincetown, Massachusetts, and the day after Christmas it deposited its 102 settlers nearby at the site of Plymouth. Before going ashore at Plymouth, Pilgrim leaders drafted the Mayflower Compact, a brief 200-word document that was the first framework of government written and enacted in the territory that would later become the United States of America. The ship remained in port until the following April when it left for England. The true fate of the vessel remains unknown. Some historians argue that the Mayflower was scrapped for its timber, which was then used in the construction of a barn in Jordan's England in Buckinghamshire. In 1957, the historic voyage of the Mayflower was commemorated when a replica of the original ship was built in England and sailed to Massachusetts in 53 days. Also on September 16, 1823, 198 years ago, Francis Parkman, one of America's greatest historians, was born in Boston. Parkman is best known for his classic seven-volume history entitled France and England in North America, covering the colonial period from its early beginnings to 1763. Parkman's accomplishments are all the more impressive in light of the fact that he suffered from a debilitating neurological illness which plagued him his entire life and which was never properly diagnosed. He was often unable to walk, and for long periods, he was effectively blind, being unable to see just the slightest amount of light. Or I should say, being only able to see the slightest amount of light. Much of his research involved having people reading documents to him, and much of his writing was written in the dark or dictated to others. Along with William H. Prescott and George Bancroft, Francis Parkman is considered one of the great pioneering historians of the 19th century, And I should tell you, his works are still very much worth reading. Francis Parkman died on November 8, 1893, at the age of 70, and he is buried in Mount Auburn Cemetery in Cambridge, Massachusetts. On September 17, 1787, 234 years ago, the United States Constitution was signed by 39 delegates from 12 states as the Constitutional Convention wrapped up its business in Philadelphia. The convention met in the Pennsylvania State House in Philadelphia from May 25th to September 17th that summer, ostensibly to amend the Articles of Confederation. All the states except Rhode Island responded to an invitation issued by the Annapolis Convention of 1786 to send delegates to this convention. 
Of the 74 deputies chosen by those 12 state legislatures, only 55 took part in the proceedings, and of those, 39 signed the Constitution. The delegates, of course, included many of the leading figures of the period, among them George Washington, who was elected to preside over the convention, James Madison, who is known as the father of the Constitution, and Benjamin Franklin in his last public service. There were others missing, of course, Samuel Adams, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson. Those last two didn't attend as they were on diplomatic service in Europe. Also on September 17, 1923, 98 years ago, Hiram Williams was born in Georgiana, Alabama. As Hank Williams, he would go on to become one of the most influential musicians of the 20th century and country music's first superstar. Williams began playing the guitar at age eight under the tutelage of an African-American named Rufus Payne. He made his radio debut at age 13, formed his first band, Hank Williams and his Drifting Cowboys, at age 14, and early on he began wearing the cowboy hats and western clothing that later was so associated with Hank Williams. During World War II, Williams commuted between Mobile, where he worked in a shipyard, and Montgomery, where he pursued a musical career. It was around this time that Williams began abusing alcohol, a problem that haunted him the rest of his life, but that came about partly as a result of his attempts to self-medicate agonizing back pain caused by a congenital spinal disorder. His breakthrough moment came in 1949 with the release of Lovesick Blues, an old show tune that Williams parlayed into a chart-topping hit, an invitation to join the Grand Ole Opry in Nashville, and international fame. More than half of the 66 recordings he would make under his own name were top 10 country and western hits, 11 of them reaching number one, including Cold Cold Heart, Your Cheatin' Heart, Hey Good Lookin', Jambalaya, and I'll Never Get Out of This World Alive. He also released a string of religious-themed recordings under the name Luke the Drifter. The last years of his life were lived in a haze of increasing substance abuse. Hank Williams died of a heart attack in a drug and alcohol-induced stupor in the backseat of a car near Oak Hill, West Virginia on New Year's Day, 1953, at the age of 29, while being driven from Knoxville, Tennessee, to a concert in Canton, Ohio. In 2010, the Pulitzer Prize Board awarded Williams a special citation for, quote, his craftsmanship as a songwriter who expressed universal feelings with poignant simplicity and played a pivotal role in transforming country music into a major musical and cultural force in American life, unquote. As I mentioned, he was inducted into the Grand Ole Opry in 1949, the Country Music Hall of Fame in 1961, the Alabama Music Hall of Fame in 1985, and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1987. He was portrayed by George Hamilton in the 1964 film Your Cheatin' Heart, and by English actor Tom Hiddleston in the 2016 film I Saw the Light. Hank Williams is buried in Oakwood Annex Cemetery in Montgomery, Alabama. On September 18, 1895, 126 years ago, President Grover Cleveland threw an electric switch at his Massachusetts home and officially opened the Atlanta Cotton States and International Exposition. Civic leaders wanted to promote Georgia's economic development and showcase Atlanta as the resurgent heart of the New South. There were 6,000 exhibits, among them the Liberty Bell, as well as celebrities like Buffalo Bill and March King John Philip Sousa. 
The exposition was open for 100 days from September 18th to New Year's Eve 1895, attracting over 800,000 people. Over $2 million was spent on the transformation of Piedmont Park, including the Tropical Gardens, now known as the Atlanta Botanical Gardens, and Lake Claramere, which was originally a pond but was expanded to 11.5 acres for the event. Today, the stone balustrades scattered around the park are the only remaining part of the enormous main building. On that opening day, September 18th, Booker T. Washington delivered his controversial Atlanta Compromise speech in which he urged fellow African Americans to stop agitating for social and political equality and focus instead on economic opportunities. White listeners gave him a standing ovation, but W.E.B. Du Bois and other black leaders denounced Washington for submitting to segregation and inequality. Washington's speech was a key moment in civil rights history. Also on September 18, 1970, 51 years ago, musician, singer, and songwriter Jimi Hendrix died in London of barbiturate-related asphyxia at the age of 27. Although his mainstream career spanned only four years, he is widely regarded as one of the most influential electric guitarists in the history of popular music and one of the most celebrated musicians of the 20th century. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame describes him as, quote, arguably the greatest instrumentalist in the history of rock music, unquote. James Marshall Hendricks was born on November 27, 1942, in Seattle, Washington, and began playing guitar at the age of 15. In 1961, he enlisted in the U.S. Army, but was discharged honorably the following year. He moved to Nashville, Tennessee, and began playing in the Isley Brothers backing band, and later with Little Richard, with whom he continued to work through mid-1965. He then played with Curtis Knight and the Squires, before moving to England in late 1966, after bassist Chaz Chandler of the Animals became his manager. Within months, Hendrix had formed the trio The Jimi Hendrix Experience with bassist Noel Redding and drummer Mitch Mitchell and landed three UK top ten hits with Hey Joe, Purple Haze, and The Wind Cries Mary. He achieved fame in the U.S. after his performance at the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967 and in 1968 his third and final studio album Electric Ladyland reached number one in the U.S. The double LP was Hendrix's most commercially successful release and his first and only number one album. The world's highest paid performer, he famously closed out the Woodstock Festival in 1969 with an unforgettable rendition of the Star-Spangled Banner, and he also played the Isle of Wight Festival in 1970. The Encyclopedia Britannica had this to say about Hendrix, quote, In his all-too-brief career, he managed to combine and extend the soaring improvisational transcendence of John Coltrane, the rhythmic virtuosity of James Brown, the bluesy intimacy of John Lee Hooker, the lyrical aesthetic of Bob Dylan, the bare-knuckle onstage aggression of The Who, and the hallucinatory studio fantasias of The Beatles. Hendrix's work provides a continuing source of inspiration to successive generations of musicians, to whom he remains a touchstone for emotional honesty, technological innovation, and an all-inclusive vision of cultural and social brotherhood, unquote. The Jimi Hendrix Experience was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1992. Jimi Hendrix is buried in Greenwood Memorial Park in Renton, Washington.
On September 19, 1868, 153 years ago, during Reconstruction, a political rally in Camilla, Georgia, in Mitchell County, resulted in about a dozen freedmen being killed and 30 others wounded in what became known as the Camilla Massacre. Georgia had just been readmitted to the Union, but blacks and whites remained deeply divided in the aftermath of the Civil War. In early September of 1868, white conservatives in the Georgia legislature, who at that time were Democrats, expelled all 28 African-American members from the state legislature. In response, one of those black members, Philip Joyner from southwest Georgia, led several hundred freedmen on a march from Albany to Camilla for a Republican rally. As the marchers entered the courthouse square, the sheriff and other local whites opened fire. The violence sent a clear message. Many black voters stayed home for the presidential election two months later. But the Camilla massacre made national headlines and prompted Congress to return Georgia to military occupation and further reconstruction. In 1998, 130 years later, the massacre was officially acknowledged when Camilla publicly commemorated the victims of the most violent event in Georgia's Reconstruction history. On September 20, 1863, 158 years ago, the Battle of Chickamauga ended in northwest Georgia during the American Civil War. Only the Battle of Gettysburg was bloodier. Three months earlier, the United States Army had begun a strategy to capture Chattanooga, a major railroad hub and gateway to the Deep South. General William Rosecrans, U.S. Army of the Cumberland, and General Braxton Bragg's Confederate Army of Tennessee, with 120,000 soldiers in the combined armies, collided at Chickamauga Creek, 12 miles south of Chattanooga, on September 19th. The combined casualty count was 34,000 men and a defeat for the U.S. Army, the greatest U.S. defeat in the Western theater. Chickamauga was a tactical Confederate victory, but a strategic defeat. U.S. General George Thomas earned the nickname the Rock of Chickamauga by holding off the Confederates long enough for the U.S. Army to retreat to Chattanooga, their objective all along. Two months later, Ulysses S. Grant decisively defeated Bragg's Confederates at Chattanooga, completely nullifying the Confederate victory at Chickamauga. That opened the door to Atlanta and eventually to Sherman's march to the sea. Ironically, ultimate Confederate defeat began with a Confederate victory at Chickamauga. In 1890, an act of Congress created a national military park at the two battlegrounds. On September 21, 1937, 84 years ago, The Hobbit, a novel by J.R.R. Tolkien, was first published. The novel's official title is The Hobbit, or There and Back Again and it was published to wide critical acclaim, being nominated for the Carnegie Medal and awarded a prize from the New York Herald Tribune for Best Juvenile Fiction. The book remains tremendously popular and is recognized as a classic in children's literature. In fact, it has never been out of print. Its ongoing legacy encompasses many adaptations for stage, screen, radio, board games, and video games. John Ronald Rule Tolkien was born on January 3, 1892 in South Africa. When his father died in 1896, his mother took her two sons and returned to the West Midlands of England, where she had grown up. When he was 12, his mother died suddenly of diabetes, and a Catholic priest, Father Francis Morgan, eventually took in the two orphans. Showing a clear gift for languages, Ronald, as he was known to his friends, went to Exeter College in Oxford, England, where he obtained a degree in June 1915. 
During the First World War, he served in the Lancashire Fusiliers and fought in the Battle of the Somme in 1916. After the war, he became an assistant lexicographer on the Oxford English Dictionary. For most of his adult life, Tolkien taught English language and literature, specializing in Old and Middle English at the Universities of Leeds and Oxford, where he retired in 1959. In private, Tolkien amused himself by writing an elaborate series of fantasy tales set in a world of his own creation. The longest and most important of these stories, begun about 1930, was The Hobbit, a coming-of-age fantasy about a comfort-loving hobbit named Bilbo Baggins, who joins a quest for a dragon's treasure. In 1937, The Hobbit was published with pictures by the author, who was an accomplished amateur artist, and it was so popular that his publisher asked for a sequel. The result, 17 years later, was Tolkien's masterpiece, The Lord of the Rings, a modern version of the heroic epic. The Lord of the Rings was not written specifically for children, nor is it technically a trilogy, though it's often published in three parts, The Fellowship of the Ring, The Two Towers, and The Return of the King. It was divided originally because of its bulk and to reduce the risk to its publisher should it fail to sell. In fact, it proves immensely popular. On its publication in paperback in the United States in 1965, it attained cult status on college campuses. Although some critics disparage it, several polls since 1996 have named The Lord of the Rings the best book of the 20th century, and its success made it possible for other authors to thrive by writing fantasy fiction. It had sold more than 50 million copies in some 30 languages by the turn of the 21st century. A film version of The Lord of the Rings by New Zealand director Peter Jackson, released in three installments between 2001 and 2003, achieved worldwide critical and financial success. Jackson then adapted The Hobbit as a trilogy between 2012 and 2014. J.R.R. Tolkien died on September 2, 1973 at age 81 and is buried in Wolvercote Cemetery in Oxford, England. Finally, on September 22, 1979, 42 years ago, an American satellite called the Vela Hotel, that's V-E-L-A, detected an unidentified double flash near the Prince Edward Islands in the Indian Ocean. The cause of the flash remains officially unknown, and some information about the event remains classified by the U.S. government. It has been suggested that the signal could have been caused by a meteoroid hitting the satellite, though the Previous 41 double flashes detected by the Vela satellites were caused by nuclear weapons tests. Today, most independent researchers believe that the 1979 flash was caused by a nuclear explosion, and the speculation is that it was carried out by South Africa and Israel. If you're a fan of the TV show The West Wing, you may remember an episode in 2004, Season 5, Episode 13, entitled The Warfare of Genghis Khan, about a nuclear explosion over the Indian Ocean. That show was inspired by the Vela incident of 1979, which is still officially unexplained. And that's This Week in History.
this is the part of the podcast where I often tell you about someone of note who has died recently that you probably didn't hear about. This week, we're making this the heart of the podcast, as we remember five historians who have died over the past several months, whose work and scholarship deeply influenced the profession and, in turn, the public. First, Leon Litwack died on August 5th in Berkeley, California. Litwack was a scholar of the Reconstruction era of slavery and segregation and its dark legacy in American history. He was an outstanding teacher who spent most of his career at the University of California, Berkeley, where he taught an introductory survey of American history that routinely attracted more than 700 students a semester before his retirement in 2007. During Litwack's 43 years on the Berkeley faculty, an estimated 35,000 students took his introductory course in American history, and he taught it long after most professors of his stature had stopped teaching introductory courses in American history. Litwack received his Ph.D. at Berkeley, where he worked with Kenneth Stamp, himself a pioneering scholar of slavery and the author of the 1956 book The Peculiar Institution, Slavery in the Antebellum South. Litwack was the author of several landmark works, the most famous of which was Been in the Storm So Long, The Aftermath of Slavery, published by Alfred A. Knopf in 1979, which won the Pulitzer Prize, the National Book Award, and the Francis Parkman Prize for History. This pathbreaking book demonstrated how black people thought about and shaped their own liberation, and it was one of many published in the 1970s that broke new ground in the study of slavery in American history. The New York Times said this about Litwack, quote, Beginning in the early 1960s, a time when many historians still treated enslaved and freed black people as passive actors in their own narratives, he cut a different path, immersing himself in the archives to discover black voices and their stories, and show how they thought about and struggled against oppression, unquote. Historian David Herbert Donnell, reviewing the book in The New Republic, wrote that Litwack was, quote, the first historian to make use in a general work on the Reconstruction era of the thousands of slave narratives collected by interviewers from the Federal Writers Project during the New Deal. The result, Donald said, was, quote, a long book, an important book, and a richly rewarding book that belongs on that short shelf of indispensable works on Southern history, unquote. Our country has been grappling with how to teach slavery, white supremacy, and segregation in the classroom, and Litwack had something to say about that many years ago. In a 2001 interview, he said, and I quote here, Few people have cared more deeply about this nation than some of its severest critics, and we need to be wary of those who, in the name of protecting our freedoms, would diminish them. History teaches, after all, that it is not the rebels, the iconoclast, the curious, the dissidents who endanger a democratic society, but rather the accepting, the unthinking, the unquestioning, the docile, the obedient, the silent, and the indifferent, unquote. Drawing on little-used sources, including music and oral histories, Litwack sought to portray the experiences of people who had endured slavery and lived under a rigid, racially determined society in which white people, as he put it, owned the land, the law, the police, the courts, the government, the armed forces, and the press. He wrote that in his 1998 book, Trouble in Mind, Black Southerners in the Age of Jim Crow. 
In addition to Been in the Storm So Long and Trouble in Mind, Litwack was also the author of a book called North of Slavery, The Negro in the Free States, 1790-1860, which was his dissertation under Kenneth Stamp. It was published in 1961 and demonstrated how oppression against black people was not unique to the South. As I mentioned, Trouble in Mind, The Black Southerners in the Age of Jim Crow, was published in 1998. And finally, How Free is Free? The Long Death of Jim Crow, published in 2009. Leon Litwack, a towering scholar of the black experience in America, died on August 5th of bladder cancer at the age of 91. Biographer and historian Stephen B. Oates died at his home in Amherst, Massachusetts on Friday, August 20th. Oates was a longtime faculty member at the University of Massachusetts Amherst from 1968 to 1997, nearly 30 years. He published more than 15 books, including a two-volume textbook of American history that was widely used in classrooms, and he was a featured expert in filmmaker Ken Burns' 1990 PBS series on the Civil War. Oates was most famous for his biographies of historical figures from the Civil War era, primarily. He was the author of To Purge This Land with Blood, a biography of John Brown, published in 1970. 1977's With Malice Toward None, A Life of Abraham Lincoln, widely considered for years the best one-volume biography of Lincoln. And A Woman of Valor, Clara Barton and the Civil War, published in 1994. He also published biographies of two major black Americans. The first, in 1975, entitled The Fires of Jubilee, Nat Turner's Fierce Rebellion, and Let the Trumpet Sound, The Life of Martin Luther King Jr., published in 1982. In 1990, Robert Bray, an English professor and literary critic at Illinois Wesleyan University, delivered a paper at a conference in which he cited similarities between passages in Oates' book With Malice Toward None and a 1952 biography of Lincoln by Benjamin Thomas. It was a huge, big scandal that went on for years. Um, And Stephen B. Oates was eventually cleared of plagiarism by the American Historical Association and the University of Massachusetts Amherst, though they did note that there were some similarities between his phrasing and uh, and that he didn't cite sources as he should have. And even though he was cleared, Oates, for all intents and purposes, felt that his reputation was shattered. He left the profession and did not publish in the same way again. A great loss for the profession. Stephen Oates died of pancreatic cancer on August 20th at the age of 85. Gary Nash, a longtime professor at UCLA, died on July 29th. Nash was a prolific historian of early America and, like Leon Litwack, practiced history from the bottom up, focusing on those who often left few written records. It was Gary Nash who found himself at the center of a history-cultural war not unlike the kind going on right now, when, in the mid-1990s, Nash's university-backed organization called the National Center for History in the Schools released a draft of what it called National Standards for United States History, a guide for elementary and high school teachers. Drawing on the latest academic scholarship, he and his team urged teachers to move beyond rote memorization of dates and famous names. 
The standards de-emphasize the conventional great man approach to history, as Nash told the Chicago Tribune in 1994, in favor of giving students what he called a slightly different view of themselves as history makers. The result was, as might be expected, fury from conservatives who accused Nash of trying to cram left-wing revisionist history down unsuspecting students' throats. The most pointed attack came from Liz Cheney, who is chairwoman of the National Endowment for the Humanities, had provided about half the funding for Nash's project. The standards were just one front in the history wars that raged throughout the late 1980s and early 90s and, of course, continue to this day. Other battles at that time surrounded the 500th anniversary in 1992 of Christopher Columbus's arrival in the Western Hemisphere and a 1994 exhibition at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum about the decision to use the atomic bomb against Japan in World War II. Gary Nash got his Ph.D. in 1963 and was part of the wave of those who practiced what was then called New Left History, which rejected the discipline's traditional focus on elites as the movers of history in favor of a focus on everyday people. His book, Red, White, and Black, The Peoples of Early America, published in 1974 and revised many times thereafter, looked at the colonial era through the eyes of Native Americans, working-class whites, and free and enslaved black people. In Nash's book, The Urban Crucible, The Northern Seaports and the Origins of the American Revolution, published in in 1979, which, by the way, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, Nash looked at how shifting political ideas among sailors, dock workers, and other working-class people in the port towns of Philadelphia, Boston, and New York played a crucial role in the movement for independence. Though his critics often tarred him as anti-American or worse, Nash insisted that he was optimistic about the country. As Carla Pestana, one of his grad students and now the chair of the UCLA Department of History, said about him, quote, If you were a hard-left historian of the United States, you would not have written what he did. He was always optimistic about the United States. He thought the real story was about ordinary people striving to make the country better. Nash also weighed in on the current controversies surrounding how race and racism are taught in schools, a debate that he believed threatened a fundamental aspect of education in a democracy. In a podcast for The Economist, in July of this year, he said, quote, In a liberal democracy, we want a division of opinion. Patriotism is not just saluting the flag. It's becoming a responsible citizen who will take an active role in what's going on around them. Gary Nash's other books include Forging Freedom, The Formation of Philadelphia's Black Community, 1720 to 1840, published in 1988, and The Unknown American Revolution, The Unruly Birth of Democracy and the Struggle to Create America, published in 2005. All of his books, terrific, well worth reading. My own Gary Nash story (laughs) is this. I was introduced to Gary Nash and his work in the fall quarter 1986 in Fennessy Spalding's graduate seminar at the University of Georgia on colonial history. We had to read both Red, White, and Black and The Urban Crucible. That fall, I went to my first conference of the Southern Historical Association with the University of Georgia, and I was one of the people assigned to work the registration desk, and that was the days before we had computers, and so we had manual typewriters in front of us. Someone would come up and present their registration form. You would look at their name, and you would type their name on the little card that they would then wear on their on the breast of breast coat 
pocket uh, of their jacket or on the front of their dress for the rest of the conference. The hello, my name is Stan Deaton kind of thing. The very first person who walked up to the registration desk after I sat down, and at that time I was a green as a Granny Smith Apple graduate student in my first quarter of a master's program at the University of Georgia, and the fellow who walked up and handed me his registration form, it said Gary Nash, UCLA. I looked up, I saw him. He, of course, had no idea who I was. This was the man who had written two books that I was in the midst of reading at that time. I did manage to type his name correct, but I put it at the very top of the card. So if he put it on, it said Gary Nash, and then there was just an acre of white space under his name where there was nothing. And when I handed it to him, he looked at it, he looked at me, he looked at the card. I could tell he really wanted another one, but he was too much of a gentleman to ask for it, and he put it on, and he walked away. And that was my only personal touch with Gary Nash. Gary Nash died on July 29th of colon cancer at the age of 88. Robert Middlecoff, a historian of the American Revolution, died on March 10th in Pleasanton, California. Like Leon Litwack, he too taught at the University of California, Berkeley, and was most famous for his book, The Glorious Cause, The American Revolution, 1763 to 1789, the first volume that was published as part of the popular Oxford History of the United States in 1982. It was a finalist for the 1983 Pulitzer Prize. An expanded and revised edition published in 2005 added material on the riots in response to British measures in the years before 1776, a discussion of women's participation in the revolution, and a new section on American Indians. It also paid more attention to the experience of enslaved people and loyalists, all of which had been somewhat missing in the first edition of the book in 1982. Middlecoff served as a first lieutenant in the Marines from 1952 to 1954, deploying to both Korea and Japan. He studied at Yale under the eminent historian Edmund Morgan, the renowned historian of Puritanism and colonial life, who remained an influence on Middlecoff for more than 50 years. Middlecoff's other books included The Mathers, Three Generations of Puritan Intellectuals, 1596 to 1728, published in 1971, which examined the development of Puritan theology and thought through the lives and work of the ministers Richard Increase and Cotton Mather. It won the Bancroft Prize, one of the most prestigious honors in American history, in 1972. He published a book called Benjamin Franklin and His Enemies in 1996, focusing on Franklin's personal relationships and the emotions, especially anger, that they produced. He described Franklin's conflict with Thomas Penn, the proprietor of the Pennsylvania Colony, son of its founder, John Adams, and Franklin's own son, William. His last book was called Washington's Revolution, The Making of America's First Leader, published in 2015. A prolific scholar of the era of the American Revolution, Robert Middlecoff died on March 10th at the age of 91. Finally, James W. Lowen died on August 19th in Bethesda, Maryland. He was most famous as the author of a dozen books that debunked myths about the American past, most famously a book called Lies My Teacher Told Me. Everything Your American History Textbook Got Wrong, published in 1995, followed by others like it, most famously Lies Across America, What Our Historic Sites Get Wrong, published in 1999. His book, Sundown Towns, A Hidden Dimension of American Racism, 
published in 2005, documented the stories of thousands of communities from 1890 to 1968 that systematically and often forcibly excluded black people, Jews, and others. James Lowen had a lot to say to the American people about their past and often the fabricated history associated with it. James Lowen died of bladder cancer and was 79 years old. Remembering five historians whose work deeply influenced the way we think about the past, who taught generations of students and trained a host of others who continue to teach and research and write American history. Their scholarship explored the complexity of the American past and the people who lived it, and they will continue to shape the way we think about the past and thus the future for years to come. Their scholarship, their work, their books, all still worth reading and exploring, and I encourage you to do it if you haven't done it already. As we mark the deaths of Leon Litwack, Stephen Oates, Gary Nash, Robert Middlecoff, and James Lowen. The hardest working engineer in show business, the czar of our Tallahassee office, as well as the captain of the GHS unicycle football team, is our very own Brendan Cannonball Crellin. Our GHS director of propaganda is Patty Press Release Maher. The GHS playground director, staff archaeologist, and fearless food taster is Elise, are you going to eat that? Butler. Our GHS coordinator of classroom indoctrination is Lisa War Eagle Landers. The GHS maven of social media and library science is Sabrina Human Search Engine Saturday. Our GHS efficiency expert and controller of German names is Karen Bodenschatz Zollner. The director of the GHS Russian Literature Division is Christy Maple Crisp, assisted by our writing intern Warren Peace. Our off the beaten path fact checker is Ella Fino. Our GHS customer service specialist is Begonia Payne Diaz. Our GHS big band leader is Juan Anatu. Our off the beaten path table saw operator is Les Digits. Our off the beaten path director of Three Stooges Studies is Lee Iapoca. The GHS airline reservations manager is Will Price Randomly. Our staff elections coordinator is Emmanuel Recount. And our off the beaten path martini mixer is Olive Twist. If you have an iPhone, you can find our podcast at the App Store or on the podcast app on your phone and on Spotify. If you have an Android, look for us at Google Play. You can find out everything about the Georgia Historical Society at georgiahistory.com and the Georgia History Festival at georgiahistoryfestival.org. Be sure and like Off the Deaton Path on Facebook and Instagram as well. Please also visit DeatonPath.GeorgiaHistory.com and check out Dispatches from Off the Deaton Path, my blog, and similarly recently deceased podcasts like this one. Stay safe, stay strong. I'm Stan Deaton with the Georgia Historical Society. As always, thank you for listening. <laughs>